We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, Gator Nation, to the podcast. My name is Alan Williams, sitting across from James DiVirgilio. We're here to bring you all the analysis of the spring game. Hope you enjoyed yourself. If you were there, I'm sure it was a bright and sunny day watching the Gators perform. James, how are you feeling today? You ready? I'm feeling pretty good. What you listeners don't know is that for the first time ever, Alan and I in the podcast studio are facing each other across from this rather large table on the second floor of our studio. It's great. I get to look at his face. Normally we're side by side and it's kind of this awkward dance. We're at the same long table and we're sort of angled to keep the microphones away from each other. And uh, this is great. I feel like we're in a very professional studio. It's a, rev- it's a revolution, James, here at the Gator Nation Football Podcast. And almost as exciting as our microphone setup uh, is the fact that you guys still really appreciate our content and like us on Facebook, become patrons on Patreon. Uh, that, I guess, is what allows indirectly for this mic setup. I want to say that that funds the show, but the reality is the podcast is, has been like bootstrap funded for a while, if you want to peel back the scenario. In fact, you yourself could start a podcast for less than $200 if you're at home. So if you feel like you've got a talent, go for it. That's what I Alan love and I did to do that. once upon a time. We'll tell our story, as we always do every fall, about how this thing started. Quite the story, but seriously, patrons, you know who you are out there. Thank you. We will once again give you the vocal shout out. We had yet another new donor come on this week, Charlie Murphy. Charlie Murphy. Yes, Charlie Murphy. Uh, comes in as a medium dono, and we love getting donos. And top supporter, King of the Jungle, who sent us a great Facebook set of gifts and memes this week to celebrate his still kingdom, uh, Alexander Leventhal. And there's lots of different dono sizes, Alan. You could give a small dono, a medium dono, a large dono, or you could give a hundo bomb if you felt so Whatever inclined. you want. Maybe Tiger Woods should give us a hundo bomb after winning the Masters. Old Eldrick, shout out to him. What's up? I know you're listening right now. Congrats to you. All right, with that, enough of the, the talk of podcast mics yeah. and patrons on Patreon. Let's get into some football. Let's do it. So James, well, let's start. You were there. You got to be there this week. I unfortunately had to be out of town. What was it like being there? Give us a little feel of the atmosphere and like kind of the stuff around the stadium before and after. 
it was actually really pretty festive, which Dan Mullen is shooting for. And if you look at last year and the year before to this year, there was a stark contrast. The environment outside the stadium, you could have almost convinced yourself it was a real game day. There was a certain buzz and energy about the about the area. The road was closed on university, so it felt like a game day. The frats were raging hard with their pregame parties, treating it like a game day. So it, it felt it felt good. There was an energy. There was a vibe. Once in the stadium, there was an energy. There was a vibe. Several people were remarking that the student section was as crowded, seemingly, as it would be for a regular game at kickoff. And uh, it was it was, I think, everything Dan Mullen would have wanted. Although it wasn't seventy or eighty thousand. It felt energetic. The crowd was alive, and he gave you know he gave the crowd a show. Would you say that's reflexive that people are a little more excited going into this year than they were last year, even with a a new coaching hire last year, which sometimes brings some excitement. That people are a little more positive overall towards the program right now. I think there's no doubt that people expected to come in and see something that was going to be fun to watch at a certain level. And it's been many years since we could say that. And that, and that was true. And, and Dan, I think, continues to show that he's a little bit of a puppet master in recognizing the spring game is for the fans. And you'll see some coaches that just do not understand this. We talked about it on the pod last week. Dan totally understands it. That entire Saturday is engineered so that fans can get close access to the program, closer access than they could get during the fall. And it allows for families to come for free sit in the swamp, watch the Gators play, and have a relaxing, fun time. And that's that's a that's a great thing. I think it's one of the best things about Dan is that he, he does view the program in totality. Yeah, it does seem that he's got a plan for everything, not just offensively and defensively, but how does he want the program to look and feel? How does he want to approach things from a macro level? And you know, I don't think you're able to get that as a first-time coach. You maybe have some thoughts, but you're going to run into a lot of barriers and things are going to take you by surprise. I don't think anything is taking Dan by surprise at this point. You know, certainly stuff happens that's out of your control, but he at least knows what he's shooting for in most of these areas. Uh, and the, yeah, the spring game is a part of that. He's got a plan for this, just like he's got a plan for Miami coming up, you know, August 24th. So let's put this game in context and talk about the plan on the field. We talked about last week. With Dan Mullen, you know what you're going to get. The game itself is going to look like this. I don't think it looked like that. What What do you think the coaches were trying to accomplish in this game? Well, I, certainly they were trying to put on a show. You see that with some of the antics. We'll talk about this in a, in a little bit. I think he wanted the offense to look good and build confidence around probably both the team and the fans that the offense is going to be better. And I think it was better. So even if you look back at last year's probably rushing attempts versus this year's. I'm sure last year's was way higher. They were throwing the ball, I don't know, not every time it was a significant moment, but almost every time. They did run it some, but it was more just, I think, just to practice those plays and you know let the running backs have a little bit of you know success running the ball. But it was obvious that they wanted to air it out, and they wanted to put the ball down the field. And maybe that's a reflection of what they want the team to be like in the fall or just, hey, this is fun. We can do this in this moment and it'll get people excited. Uh, either way, it's probably a positive. Yeah, there were there were two distinct plans in this game, the first half plan and the second half plan. Certainly. And fans going into the game did not know what the first half plan was. We alluded to last week the fact that I think Dan Mullen is fair and I think coming out of the post-game news conference, you knew that he was. So essentially, he handicapped the defense in the first half. 
He only allowed them to run four sets. And oh, by the way, the offense knew what those four defensive play sets were. There were no blitzes. There were no stunts. There was something confusing. They really were not putting any pressure on the offensive line. So it was, as you said, Alan, set up to see a lot of fun downfield passes and more power to him. Nobody wants to sit outside in the 85-degree heat and watch us run the ball 35 times in a spring game. No. And if your offensive line is potentially going to get befuddled by a defensive line that's blitzing or scheming against it and you're not going to be able to throw the ball downfield, that's going to take away momentum from the program. And I think, if anything, the average fan came out of that game, Alan, thinking, wow, that was great. Look at Felipe Franks. Look at what our offense did. Look at our receivers. And you may not see that if it was truly a competitive game. And the fact that he tells the defense, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Here's what we're doing. This is not necessarily an opportunity for you to make or break yourself, which I think we talked about with Dan. He's not looking at the spring game as a chance to, hey, you're playing under the lights. You could earn playing time from this. He's not not doing that. That's not the primary motivation. He the, he, and I think the players, because of his vision, recognize what is going on here. This is a quarterback-based game. It's a fan-based environment. And therefore, you tie the hands of your defense a little bit and you let things play out. Right. I'm sure he coached these guys and set the expectations for them a little bit. He said something to the effect that he's looking at effort and not necessarily like, how did you grade out in terms of this coverage technique? Because really, when you stop and think about what is to be gained from the defense coming out and dominating the scrimmage, not much. There's a lot of sacks and picks and, you know, no passing yards. People are going to walk away with going, uh, I don't know about that. There's, I think that actually would translate to less momentum, less tickets sold. Maybe not like this huge drop off, but it's not going to help it. Now, I could see in another program where, let's say you're Oklahoma and you've had a dizzying offense and you're bringing back Baker Mayfield, hey, maybe you you uh, tip the defense a little bit and you say, here's what the offense might be running. And people come forward in the spring game. It's like, oh, the defense, you know, they got some pressure. They had some picks. Wow, I, I, I'm i looking forward to it. Obviously, we're in the opposite place right now. So, yeah, there's really nothing for them to be gained by having the defense show out in this contest. Um, you know, I think telling the offense, here's the four – you know, alignments the defense is going to run. They're not going to do anything really tricky. I mean, if you're Felipe Franks, you still have to diagnose it correctly and make an accurate throw. And we'll get to him in a minute. And he did that. So he didn't like fail it, but he wasn't a wizard at reading defenses in this game, if that's what you were wondering. So then how much, Allen could we really have learned about the team from this game? We set the table last week saying, there's not a lot you can learn out of a spring game. Be careful about what sort of meta narratives you take away from a spring game. But then we said there are things you can learn. What then do you think at a high level, before we break down kind of individual players and groupings, did you learn about the team from this sure. game? Sure. I'll, I'll start with this as a group. Um, I think the wide receivers are going to be as advertised or even better. They seem to be the strength of this team. They looked incredible in this game. Hopefully that's going to be true going forward. I think you can look at that. Um, that we're going to play a lot of guys, both offensively and defensively. I think there's a lot of um, guys vying for positions and playing time, and that's going to be good for the health of the program. And then, you know, I think we've taken some steps on offense. I think we have improved overall, whether the offensive line submarines us remains to be seen. But the potential is this there for the offense to move forward, I think. 
what I take away from this is that we are in the middle of a remodel. So Dan Mullen inherits this this mansion that was once full of life, full of appliances that worked, full of walls <laughs> that were sturdy. Yeah. And then it slowly eroded away. And then under Dan's watch, he's brought it back. But the work is not done yet. You still have interior walls that are not strong. You still have facade components that are that are weak and dangerous. Yet what you see is the plan of the architect, of the plan of Dan, is is clear. He knows what he's doing. And you're out there watching a spring game where things are competent, things are well-organized, things are well-run, the players are respecting their coaches, their staff. It's just an efficient operation. And that is something I think that we have not seen uh, really since Urban's time here in the spring game. And I think Dan is even better than Urban at the organizational structuring uh, than you know than, than his predecessor. And I think that's a, that's a huge accomplishment by Dan. So I think what we learned is something we maybe already knew, but now we're getting to enjoy the fruits of it. This team will still be flawed, yes, but the players themselves know their role. They know what they're doing. They know what they're working towards, and we're seeing improvement. Even if it's being aided, you're seeing actual player improvement in a spring game uh, with players that we've seen play now for several years. And that, that is something I think the spring game, this particular spring game, cemented more than other ones we've seen. Maybe we're finally, Allen getting some continuity. Right. I, I would hope so. That That's what you would expect from a top-level coach that the team is going to make improvement. You know, a lot of narratives out of the spring, you, know, you can kind of, if you're, if you're a practice observer, you would maybe come away that, from a conclusion with certain teams that the offense is ahead of the defense or the defense is ahead of the offense at this point in the progression now, if you just watch the spring game, you could say, well, clearly the offense is way ahead of the defense. Now, this is a, a defense that's returning eight starters, you know, losing some high-profile guys in Jefferson, Polite, and Chauncey Gardner. Do you think that that is true, that the offense is ahead of the defense? Definitely not. I think that what we know even after the game, aside from the fact that some of the, you know, some of the most notable Gator defenders were not playing in this game, especially C.J. Henderson. The defense was not playing regular defense. And the second half, their stats were actually quite gaudy, and there was never a true number one defense playing. And they racked up a ton of sacks, a ton of pressures, a ton of negative plays. So first half, second half, yes, Franks didn't play, but as we're going to break down here when we go offense defense, I don't think you'd want to take that narrative out. In fact, if anything... I think that the defense is probably ahead of the offense right now if they're going to really treat this as a real game because of what you mentioned, the experience. And you cannot, and we cannot on this podcast, say enough about how replacing four starters in the offensive line, especially at this stage of the season, spring ball, would dramatically affect how that unit performs. So, no, I don't think that's what you want to take away. However, I do think there are some key themes that we're going to talk about here, Alan, that we can confidently take away from and choose to employ throughout the season. I think these things you're hearing about today are going to be things we're going to talk about all the way until December. Okay, well, before we get into the offense, defense, and positions, do you feel more optimistic coming out of this game, or would you neutral or a little more pessimistic? Where would you rate yourself coming out of the game than you were walking into it? I felt pretty optimistic going into it. I think, however, I'm probably more optimistic than I was for two reasons. One, the fan base does truly seem to be revitalized. I'm hoping that carries over into this season. I think last year was kind of a prove it, prove it, prove it, prove it. And by the end of the season, seemed to have proved it. It feels like we're going to enter this season, this season opener against Miami in a neutral site with a lot of, I don't want to say swagger yet, 
but a lot of real, genuine fan excitement. That's that's something I'm very optimistic about. I think the players feed off of that. And then secondarily, I think there's reason to be excited about all of our quarterbacks actually learning and us observing that. And Franks being the key behind that is there's no doubt that every time we see Franks, he gets better. What his ceiling is, like we keep talking about, we don't know. But that can only be a testament to Dan Mullen. And as you and I have said countless times throughout the years in this podcast, you cannot win, especially not at Florida, where we're not recruiting at the Bama or Georgia level. You cannot win without a quarterback that's going to be above average. You have to have that. You have to have that. And so therefore, that's maybe the most optimistic thing is all three of those guys, Alan, were better than the last time I saw them play. Agreed. That's an interesting note about the fan base. If I'm going to use myself as a barometer, which, you know, is maybe fair or not fair, I think I was cautiously optimistic. Like you said, on guard a little bit. The prove it, prove it, prove it is probably a pretty accurate way to, I don't know, describe how people were feeling last season. Not that we're going to fall on our face, but like, let's let's be careful out here, folks. We've all gotten our hearts broken a lot over the last few years. And I think some of that cautiousness is is pulled back a little bit. And people, the people who want to be optimistic are just now optimistic. And I think you and I are probably somewhere, okay, we are feeling pretty good that this this will be a competitive team that maybe they don't win every game, but they're going to be competent and they're going to look good and they're going to improve. And so, yeah, I'm a little bit more optimistic heading out of this game. I I don't know that it moved me a lot, but if I have to choose one of those three categories, I'll say more optimistic. Okay, let's jump in and talk about the offense. Um, let's talk about the positive first. Like, what did you, when you were watching them, what did you take away with or would you come, come away with in the positive area? I think the most positive thing for me, even if this is something we never see again, it at least got my fire going. We ran multiple two on one downfield attack the safety routes. Now, if you've been a long-term listener of this show, you know that my favorite style of offense starts by two-on-one-ing the safeties and then moving down. So it is not a read short, then read long. It's read long, then read short. Uh, Dan Mullen is precisely the opposite of that in his core philosophy. He's very much three to four yards. We've covered this a lot. We'll cover it again as we move more into the season. But what happened in the first half of that game on Saturday were two-on-one routes against safeties. And, And Franks made the right decision every single time. Now, as you mentioned, Alan, it should be noted that Frank's new pre-snap exactly what alignment they were going to be in. He knew they would not shift post-snap, which means all he actually had to do was read the safety. However, Frank's, from the film we've seen on him, Alan, has never been able to read a player that I've observed on film yet. So the fact that he could even do it in those conditions is still a step up. And I think Dan Mullen knows this. I think Dan Mullen saw Frank start to take this step in spring practice, Dan listens to what goes on in the press. He knows that the big knock on Franks is he can't complete a deep pass. So what does he have Franks do? Go out there on national TV, go out there in front of all your fans and complete a bunch of deep passes. Brilliant plan. I'm not going to take away from Franks the throws he made. A lot of them are excellent throws. Good corner route, good rail route to the sideline, good post route the middle. I mean, he threw a wide variety of deep throws. Uh, So for me, though, if Allen that translated to actually running some of those kind of plays on Saturdays in the fall, I would be giddy. I think that's something I've been imploring and begging and hoping Dan adds into his repertoire, that he becomes a little bit less conservative and a little bit more attack-oriented down the field. I think it would greatly benefit this team. 
and he put it on display on Saturday, and it was awesome. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, I loved it. So, and again, you think of a deep ball. Sometimes you think about just a receiver running straight down the field and beating man coverage and just a moonshot and dropping it in there. That's one way to attack. But if you're going to use Frank's arm in a way that maximizes its value, it's some of those intermediate to deep routes. So where you're basically putting the defense in a bind, you're dropping it over the corner before the safety can get there along the sideline. You're stressing them in the middle of the field and throwing some of those post routes. The The types of throws he was making was really impressive to me and that he was on target, hitting guys in stride, um, not making them work to make a catch for the most part. And again, they were pretty wide open. But if we're going to utilize his arm in that way, I think we do need to call those types of plays. We do need to put defenses in a position where it's really untenable for them to play in a kind of um, we're going to dare you to do this type of thing mentality that we have to, that they don't know what we're going to do. They have to stress every part of the field. And, and Frank says an arm that you can do that with. Now, can you read the defense well enough remains to be seen, but that was really encouraging that they were actually calling those plays and he was completing those passes. Even if he knew what looks he was getting, uh, let's talk about a guy in Trevon Grimes. He was beast mode out there. He looked unstoppable. Even when he caught the ball and the guys had an angle, he was by them. And this is a six foot, 200 something pound guy. He started to make a move in the year. We're wondering, is this just a coincidence? Just the fact that this is good matchups for him or maybe a little bit fluky. Wide receivers tend to go up and down, but he looked incredible out there. Like the five-star guy that he was supposed to be coming out of high school. Thoughts on him. We talked about this last year, and this is why it's so insightful to watch film. And hopefully it's one of the reasons why you really enjoyed this podcast in comparison to some others is we give you this as it happens. And it was very clear all last year that when Grimes had the ball in his hands, he was making a lot of positive things happen. We unfortunately really rarely utilized him as a true receiver. There's a lot of bubble screens, a lot of east-west stuff. You saw him in the game on Saturday being used as a, a more traditional receiver, a lot of vertical passing routes, a lot of sideline stuff too. And he was by far the best athlete on the field if it came to like size, strength, quickness, all of those things together. Uh, you could say, you know, okay, Tony's the quickest, right? But if you look at the frame that Grimes is in, really outstanding wide receiver game put on film. I think it was a spring record for receiving yards. And yes, some of that did come at the expense of a defense that was hamstrung. And to illustrate this, because this is what we do on this podcast, Alan, we're seeing a two-on-one against a safety, what is happening if I'm a quarterback and I know that your defense is running a cover to you, I know that your cornerbacks and your linebackers are not going to run with my receivers all the way down the field. I know this. So imagine my receiver on my left running a go route and imagine my slot receiver on my left running what's going to look like it's going to be, let's call it a hitch. And then he turns up field and he runs a go right at the safety. What happens is the linebacker releases the slot receiver to let him go to the safety and the corner releases his go route to go to the safety now there are two routes being released to the safety with nobody chasing, which means you've got a serious problem. The safety has to pick one of those guys. He's always going to be wrong if the quarterback is successful at doing his job. Ball gets out. Grimes was a tremendous recipient of that kind of defense. Right. But that takes nothing away from him. The way he was running, the catch, the execution of the route running by all of the receivers. The as speed you mentioned, after the catch. As you mentioned, speed after the finish was fantastic. And he absolutely, I think, has set 
the bar very high for himself entering into fall camp, which is great. I think he's a guy that has all the talent in the world for that. And again, Tyler Rummery, this is why five-star players need to be on your team. They do things other guys cannot do. And you may not always hit on them, but when you do, they are a superior brand of player. And you have to have enough of those guys because they make a big difference. Yeah, he looked like a guy who could be a first-round pick. I don't know if he'll get there because the NFL is going to want him to be not just a physical freak, but a great route runner. Not to say he can't. We just haven't seen that from him yet. Okay, another guy who we've wanted to see develop into not just a specialty weapon, but a pure wide receiver who you can also use in those specialty ways is Kadarius Tony. Start off the game with a really beautiful touchdown pass to Franks. Good catch by Franks too. But starting to see him excel, not in just a trickeration kind of way, but line him up, let him beat his man inside the offense, and we're going to throw him the ball. So the, we're, the defense isn't tipped off by what he's going to do when he's on the field. I thought he looked excellent out there. Yeah, he seems to have taken major strides forward. He used to look like a frenetic athlete running around trying to juke everyone out like it was sort of a high school demo tape. And he looked like a, a receiver. He reminded me of a, of a Brandon Powell kind of receiver. Brandon Powell became a very accomplished route runner as a smaller guy. And Tony, I think last year, like we talked about, really a lot of east-west stuff, a lot of screen stuff. He'd run some vertical routes, but it really wasn't perfect. His corner route that Frank threw in was perfectly executed. Right. I thought all of all of his coming out of his break movements were really, really clean. Uh, he looks like a very dangerous and polished receiver now. And what you mentioned, Alan, means it's going to put a lot of pressure on the defense. At any given time, he can step back and take a throwback and throw it downfield. He can run some sort of reverse and throw it downfield, or he can beat you with a traditional route. He's also quick enough to be a tremendous mismatch on a linebacker, which means you're going to have to wind up putting a nickel on him. If we go five wide, who do you put on him? If we go five wide with the receivers we have, is he going to draw your third or fourth DB? If that's the case, there's a million things you can do. And I thought he really, really looked like he's taken two or three strides forward as a complete football player. Yeah, what I'd love to see him get better and better at is basically kind of the stuff you should see from Wes Welker in the Patriots offense where you know, or Edelman, whoever they have doing this, where a little bit of an option route where he can, you know, kind of make a move on his guy and go left or right. And if he's good enough, all of a sudden he loses that guy and he's in the field by himself. And you can even throw him the ball standing still. And he has time to turn around, face that guy, make a move. And all of a sudden he's in the open field and he's cutting across the field. We've seen him do that over and over again, where he can make an entire team miss on the way to the end zone. If you give him a little bit of space in front of him. It's really exciting. I don't want to like go too crazy over here, but love seeing him do that. Also, just a quick note. I think we only punted like once, maybe. He fielded the punt. Um, maybe could mean nothing, but he was the guy last year. Like, why is he not returning punts? Why do they have him doing kickoffs? Well, they put him back there to return punts one time. He fumbled a couple of them. So we we're hoping maybe he's going to catch a million punts because see, he seems like the ideal punt returner. And for at least this moment, they had him out there catching this punt may hopefully a good omen for the fall that he's they're going to trust him to do that and he'll earn that trust now a guy we talked about last week Tyree Cleveland who sort of disappeared for most of last year after flashing a lot of talent re-emerged on Saturday he dropped a pass I think if anything his hands still look a little unpolished to me the way that he catches the ball is right. not natural it's more of a of a clap catch it's not comfortable yet he will need to work on that. But the quickness and the the beating the top of the defense, which he's always had, is obviously still there. Right. It seems like Dan Mullen and him are on the same page now. 
What can we expect out of Cleveland? Well, we're going to get to this in the fall. I mean, there's only so many balls to go around. But as you mentioned, his acceleration, and we've seen him take the his top end speed is obviously about as good as you can get. His acceleration, just how sudden he seemed, and and his I mean, part of that is running better routes. He looked really dangerous too. Now we've talked about three guys who we've just gushed over, and we haven't mentioned Swain or Hammond, um, or any of these other younger guys. But if you put all those guys, or even Van Jefferson, who was our best receiver last year, you put all those guys out on the field at the same time, that is maybe the best collection of wide receiver talent that we've ever had. I don't know. I'd have to think about that, but it's certainly in the top three or four in terms of like what they could accomplish. Now, of course you've got the Jacquez green, Redell, Anthony, those guys were all top picks. These guys could be as good or better because they're so diverse in their skill sets and what they can accomplish. And there's a lot of them. So don't want to get too crazy here, but that's at least in the realm of possibility, and that's kind of crazy to talk about. And let's add one more position group that functions as kind of a wide receiver into our positives category, which piggybacks right onto what you're saying, Alan. All of this depth and talent at wide receiver. And there's been a, an emergence, maybe a re-emergence, or just an emergence of the tight end position. Yeah. What do you make of this? I really liked what I saw from the tight ends, basically because we threw to them. So Kyle Pitts has gotten a lot of coverage. Is he a wide receiver? Is he a tight end? Who cares? He's a mismatch problem. And I think that's a that's a really big advantage when you have a guy that versatile that you could put him in line as a tight end, that you could just split him out wide, and he could still do damage. When you have those types of multiple position kind of guys out there, it allows you to disguise what you're doing so much more. He looked really great. I mean, he looked good last year and a lot of promise. He looks like he's starting to capitalize on that. Kamori Gamble looked good. We didn't get to see Kroll. We've liked what we've seen out of him in the past. This is a group that's shaping up to be maybe an excellent group. A lot of guys fighting for spots here. I'm hoping that this goes beyond just talented guys, but we actually see some productivity. And that will really probably depend if those guys are talented enough that the coaches are going to use them in ways that they weren't able to do last year. Or, I don't know, maybe weren't willing to do in some cases. But... The tight end in a modern offense could is a real factor. Not even just how many balls they catch, but how you have to defend them and how you who you have to put on them. Because you can't just stick a linebacker over on Kyle Pitts. He's going to toast them. So having to deploy a defensive back means you have to do a weird stuff elsewhere to accommodate for that. So if, I don't know. If he's going to be that type of threat and you've got these other big-time blockers who can also be re- receiving threats, that's a really dangerous thing for an offense. Indeed it is. And speaking of offense and speaking of a group that we talked about, highlighted, discussed every single week, maybe it's the bread and butter of my analysis on the show, the quarterbacks. Yeah. Let's walk through each one, but let's not start with Franks. Let's save him for the end. Okay. Reverse order here. Let's go reverse order. Let's start with the guy we saw last. Well, not truly last. We're not going to count the walk-ons. Let's start with Jalen Jones. What did you see out of him? Well, I think it was pretty telling that he was wearing an orange jersey and not a white one. So that tells you they don't care if he gets a hit. Uh, that his main advantage of being out there was to test the defense in running. And he looked pretty big and pretty strong and really fast for a guy his size. 
that popped. Now he's again he's playing mostly against walk-ons, third stringers at that point, but he was flying by them. Every time he turned the corner, he was gone. Uh, I have no idea if he could ever throw the ball, but he's at least got the capability to be a really strong runner in this offense. So he looks the part running the ball, certainly. Yeah, it seems to me that all the stories we've heard about him are true. He is a, a superior athlete. The few throws he did make do not look comfortable as far as a quarterback throwing the ball. That does not mean he cannot learn. That's a very important thing to remember. When you have his size and athleticism in high school, it's very easy for your high school football coach to build an offense around that and run that. And yes, you throw up, but you're throwing to wide open guys. It just depends. You can learn. You can be a Dak Prescott. If anything, Alan, I think what you're seeing out of him is more of the prototypical size that Mullen likes his quarterbacks to be. Emory Jones is a misfit. We've talked about that. He's not a small guy, but he's kind of not... He's sort of in this weird tweener land for He everything. looks small compared to Franks and Trask and, yeah. and jo- the other Jones. And it, correct. And it's not really perfect. So you get, if anything, you get a nice snapshot right there. So Jalen Jones is the kind of size and athleticism he wants in his quarterback. He probably wants a slightly better thrower than Jones too. But as we're kind of building towards what does Dan Mullen want at his quarterback, you're kind of beginning to see with each year us getting closer to what that looks like as far as Jones ever playing. We don't know. It seems like he's a project at this point in time, but he's so athletic. It's, it seems like he will see the field at some point in time, especially with that size and that frame. But hard to make any kind of real impression off of him. He's been in camp for a minimal amount of time. I mean, he's basically a high schooler coming out there running around, but the guy the guy can move. So we'll keep an eye on him. Next, let's look at Emory Jones. He got fewer snaps than Trask, so we're going to go in reverse order here. Thoughts on his performance? He looked decent. He's still pretty quick. You know, for a guy that, again, we've talked about more of a passer than a runner. He doesn't look leaden out there. He When he turned the corner, he, he looked capable. Now, again, he, he got caught a little bit sometimes. He's not a, a premier runner, but certainly a good enough runner to be a threat. He threw the ball pretty well. Uh, not the kind of touch that you would want to see on some of his passes, but he's got a good arm. I could see him playing quarterback at UF which I don't know that I could have said, you know, and it spot spotty starts or not starts spotty play early on last year. So he's progressing. He's making moves. Um, I, I didn't get a great read on him. It wasn't disappointing or like, you know, illuminating either way. Yeah. It's, he's tricky for me. Every time I watch him, I think he doesn't look like he's going to be a high level quarterback to me. And I can't, put a million different fingers on it, you know, whether it's footwork in the pocket or whether whatever the case is, you can identify things. There's several things you could look at technique wise, but that's not what it is. It's just, there's something there when I look at him and think, I don't, I don't see it. I don't feel it. I thought he did fine. He's still young. He's still learning. He had a, he had a very simple like East West read where he threw it right to CJ McWilliams, which if you're throwing picks to CJ McWilliams Allen, you should be very concerned. Indeed. But good for CJ to get a, a little bonus highlight. But He's got a guy in a slant and a guy in an out route, and you're supposed to make that read there. And they actually, I mean, CJ Williams just jumped the slant route like straight out of the gate, and he threw it right to him. That's fine. Quarterbacks are going to do that. Uh, He does throw a really good deep ball. I think if there's one thing about Emory Jones is he puts those deep balls on the money. His receivers have unfortunately not come down with them. I'm just not sure about the rest of his quarterbacking yet. Intermediate throws, even short throws. That's the part where I look at him and I think, I just don't know what it is yet. 
But like what you said is, could he play quarterback at UF? I think he could. Am I afraid of him playing in a backup role? No, I think they would tailor the offense to things that fit him. But right now, he sort of feels like what he is. A guy that was highly ranked out of high school because he's big and strong and athletic, has a really nice arm, but didn't have everything, which is one of the reasons why he jumped to Florida and kind of a rare transition opportunity. So I would say he looks just like what he is right now. He could still become something, but nothing in the spring game led me to believe he's closed the gap on Franks or Trask, maybe. Maybe, if anything, Trask looks like the more polished guy. And let's talk a little bit about Kyle Trask. Yeah, it didn't start off good with that pick six, but interesting to me that he still has the lead over Emory Jones that I don't know if this is a function of Dan Mullen preferring so hard the fact that his quarterbacks be veteran guys that he's going to play the older guy almost no matter what whereas other coaches might play might say you know if it's relatively even I'm going to play the younger guy or if Kyle Trask is showing some stuff now we've said a lot about him in terms of his potential he's got a live arm he's big he's real big I forget how big he is until he's on the field with everybody else yeah he looked fine you know there's so many unknowns with him it's hard to even put your finger on like what could he really excel at what would be his biggest efficiency I know I was excited to see more of him when he came in relief of Felipe but I don't know I again like Felipe looks so much better than him that it's hard to like, you know, actually probably calibrate what he looked like. I thought Trask was maybe nervous. Okay. Keep in mind, Alan, this is the first action he's had in front of fans since his injury. Really first action at all since his injury in front of anyone that mattered. And he's coming out in kind of a game-like scenario. We don't know what kind of pressure he was feeling, what kind of pressure he's putting on himself. Franks comes out and gets a great debut, catches that wheel route, then does a touchdown pass, and then in comes Trask. These are kids. They're college kids. He has emotions. I think he was a little nervy. That out route he threw was atrocious. Not only was it a horrible read, it was also three yards behind the receiver. It was soft and slow and, and un, you know non-committal. I thought as the game went on, he really started to progress. He still does dangerous things, which That's is why I think if it. you come down to it, Alan, I think Emory Jones probably during this season would get the start over him. I feel like Emery is not as much of a risk taker. He would probably do what Dan Mullen wants to do, and he would run it more accordingly. But there's something about Trask I think Dan Mullen likes. There's something about that kind of gunslinger mentality, that no fear in his game, that Dan Mullen clearly finds intriguing with him, which is why he is where he is. But he is what he is, which is this unknown guy who has not played a lot, who I really hope gets a chance to play somewhere. Uh, and I thought he flashed really good stuff and then some really bad stuff. And that leads us into Franks. I think the biggest difference between Franks and Trask, when you look at it, is not just some of the things Franks took a step forward with, Allen, but Franks' velocity on the football is next level. And if you watch Trask throw even the bubble screens and the other stuff, and he's got a strong arm, it's half the speed of what Franks does it at. And that's one major thing you've always noticed. But if now Franks can become more of the competent pocket passer, which is something he's never been. Maybe that's the advantage Trask could have had on him that is no longer there. And if you're looking just at Saturday, which we're not going to do, it looked like Franks was worlds better than everyone else in the field. It was slightly designed to do it that way. But in reality, Franks was worlds better than everyone else in the field on Saturday. Yeah, Felipe 
obviously looked as good as he ever has. I mean, he never did anything really dangerous with the football, made the right reads, put the ball out on time. You know, again, he he had advantages. Uh, but even you look at his interception totals from last year, they were pretty low. I think we would have probably, if you had said that number and said over under, we would have definitely put the money on over. Uh, so that's an accomplishment for him that he, he seems like he's much more comfortable in the offense. I liked what I saw from him on Saturday. Um, I think more than anything that maybe he's taken a step forward mentally or emotionally. They had a pretty extended interview with him on the broadcast where they asked him seven or eight questions and he answered them fairly reasonably. He was much more comfortable speaking about himself in the offense than I think he has been in the past. And it was pretty relaxed atmosphere in the spring game. He had just played really well, but just the way he was able to communicate about where he's at and what he's looking for was encouraging to me. Now, I don't want to take too much from that little interview on the sideline, but um, if you're piecing all that together, it, it paints a picture of the fact that Franks is way, 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 way different than the guy they trotted out against Michigan a couple of years ago. Yeah, if you look at Felipe Franks's character arc, if he were a character in a movie right now, he's starting to fulfill his role. And what I mean by that is he came out of high school on this podcast. We said, what, Alan? We said, this is a project guy. This is a four-star. That's a four-star because he has everything you could ever want in a professional quarterback, height, length, arm strength-wise. And he has nothing at the time that you would ever want in a pro quarterback. Intelligence, pocket ability, footwork. He was a raw project. But he was literally a four-star because he has stuff hardly anybody else has. He has one of the most live and gifted arms you will see on anybody, period, including guys playing on Sundays. He's starting to project in the range where, if he figures things out, 21-year-old kid, still young, he could really become something. I think that's part of what you're seeing. There seems to be a confidence behind him that is healthy, and I don't know him. I know off the field there's all sorts of stories about any quarterback at Florida living in Gainesville. We get to hear them, and I try to just discard them because I don't make judgments on guys I don't know. And they're also kids, and these kids tend to make bad decisions, and blah, blah, blah. But it seems like what I'm saying here, he's had a lot of suffering in his journey. Uh, I think he's starting to feel comfortable, but there's not necessarily an arrogance there which is a credit to Dan Mullen. But maybe most importantly, he seems to know what Dan Mullen wants him to do, and he's faithfully doing it. Now, what we don't know about Franks are all of the things that have been his Achilles heel and major weaknesses. None of that was answered on Saturday. He did not face a defensive line that was blitzing him quickly. He did not have to make quick decisions. He had an unbelievably long amount of time to make those two-on-one reads against the safety. He will never have that kind of time against a real opponent ever at any given time. So there's a lot of question marks there, but what I want to say, and I want to give him all the credit in the world for this, Allen, where Franks is right now after that game on Saturday from where he's come from is nothing short of remarkable, even with the tag of project. And I want to give him a lot of credit, whether it's naivete or ignorance or brilliance on his part, to walk through the things he had to walk through, to walk through the fan base, to walk through my own comments, analyzing his play and others that I'm sure he's heard when he reads about it, when he's with his friends. To be where he is now is a testament to the process, to his stick to the coaching scenario, and to the fact we didn't have anyone else to beat him out. He got the benefit of kind of hanging around. And maybe if nothing else, Alan, 
This shows the nature of where we are in sport in America. Felipe Franks does not exist on most college football rosters because he got weeded out because he failed in the one shot he got. If he really becomes something, this goes back to the age-old argument, is it better to wait for some of these things? Are we rushing these guys through the process too often? Are we missing Hmm. a chance to develop guys who have a higher ceiling than the guys we're using because they're not ready yet? Maybe that will be Franks' story. I think he took one more step towards that story on Saturday. However, I caution anyone to get too excited about what that means yet because like we talked about, it's not a real game. It's not a real situation. None of the things that have hurt him as a passer were on display on Saturday. But still, one step closer. One step closer to becoming something and maybe something really, really good. Which I mean, would yeah, be I'm excellent just, for him. I'm just thinking about, I mean, I kind of almost forgot about this, but his first spring game when he was out there like throwing picks and just looked lost. Like, I don't, we were like, let's not take too much away from this because he, (laughs) it's just a spring game. But yeah, way, way far down the line. Let's talk about the O-line a little bit. This is going to be our recurring theme throughout the year. How does this unit look? James, can you, what can you take away from, if anything, from this unit? You can take away that in the first half when the defense was not doing anything remotely complicated at all, which means if you're young and you're inexperienced, you've seen this stuff and you can block them. They were fine. In fact, they gave, you could say, the offense a tremendous amount of time. In the second half, a very different story. They were routinely beat, obliterated, out of position, missing their assignment, missing who to block, all the things you would expect. This is not discouraging, but this, Allen, is the reality of Florida football in 2019. Whenever you want to get really excited about the flashy weapons and toys we have at wide receiver and running back, maybe Franks takes this big step forward. We have got a major limitation of the offensive line, and John Hevesy is going to have to do yet another miracle dance to get this team right. I don't want to pour super cold water on the little fire we've got going right now. <laughs> yeah, we've been we've been praising everyone, like but super excited about. I it said on the sideline of the game that if if this team had a competent offensive line, we'd probably be a top 10 team in the preseason. I think that would be real. I think because of that, we're anybody's guess. It's just like we've said time and time again, it's very, very hard to beat really good football teams when your offensive line's liability. Now we have a lot of time between now and then to get there. We have some talented guys, not the top talented guys. We have some talented guys. Offensive line recruiting is notoriously difficult to do. There's plenty of reason to think we could get a competent unit out there. But I think they showed on film that what you would expect. In the second half, they're not ready to handle blitzes or stunts or even basic switches yet. They're not there yet. They're not ready for that yet. Had the whole game been played that way, you're not seeing Franks throw two-on-ones against safeties. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I think even at the end of the first half, Grantham was like, all right, I'm going to send some blitzes here. And they sent like a you know, a blitz from the slot, trading blitz. They did some stuff. And there was like four guys in the backfield. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, they don't know what they're doing. And again, uh, you know, talk about a hamstrung offensive line. This wasn't like the five best starters and the other guys. Whatever combinations you saw there are not going to be the combinations in the fall. But I don't know. I'm still pretty nervous about this. It's funny. I don't feel like we ever got to a place where like, oh, yeah, we have a good offensive line. It was kind of like question marks every year about this. And then somewhere in the middle of last year, they're like, Oh yeah, they're good, but we weren't ready to say that yet or feel good about it because it was so recent. It was like, oh, that was a good game. 
Oh, that was a good couple of games. And by the end of the year, you're like, oh, yeah, they're playing pretty well. But it was never like, this is the strength of the team. And now we're starting over again. So it feels like we've been plagued by this again. Talk about where your recruiting kills you, that we had so many fallow years, and it's still hurting us. This is like goes back to Muschamp, that we've not caught up. And some of the comments from Mullen, he said, we still got work to do on this unit, that they're going to look for a grad transfer out there, a guy who can step in and play right away. Can we get a guy who can do that or even push those guys? I don't know, but they, they know they still need work. And even if it's just like more insurance about like, who's going to, who can actually play, who can actually um, line up and you can trust, you know, so more work to be done there by the coaching staff and maybe by the head coach and getting another guy in there. So our running backs, Highly touted Malik Davis comes back. We'll talk about him in a second. But a guy who is sort of just kind of an afterthought in general, Iverson Clement, got a lot of carries, had a nice game. Do you make anything of that? No, not at all. I think it was just a situational thing. They needed a guy to carry the ball, and he was available. Like P. Ryan barely played. They were going to run Damian Pierce in the ground. Malik Davis is still recovering. That leaves Iverson Clement. So he got some carries. He didn't look bad, but I wasn't like, okay, here's the guy who's going to push. You know, he didn't even really play running back last year. They had him in the in the secondary just to put some bodies back there. So I don't think we're going to see him this year unless bad things happen. <laughs> you know, on the injury front there. And that indicates to me, Alan, where we're not on the offensive line is that we can have a guy who was competent. And in fact, if you just opened your eyes and didn't see numbers, you'd watch him running the ball and think, yeah, he's fine. He's good. He's solid. He knows what he's doing. He has good moves. He's not being tackled right away. We have depth at that position. And obviously, I think everyone's really excited about Malik. I think, you know, Pete Ryan's a great, capable, safe option. Malik's here, blow it out of the water. And still my favorite is Pierce. I think even in the few carries Pierce gets in that game, yeah, he he's always flashes. Just always flashes. So a lot to look at there. But nice to know you have that kind of depth. All of those guys are quality, and they all could play in the SEC. And that's probably the biggest difference. So if you want to take a snapshot in your mind of what does it look like to have an SEC roster that wins championships, all of your guys that are on the depth chart are SEC-level players. Your corners, your safeties, your receivers, your running backs. And you can see the units where we have that. Running back, receiver, for sure, right? We can kind of go down this team, which we will in the season preview. We'll go through each group. But that's a good illustration to think about the difference. O-line right now, you've got some guys and then a bunch of dudes that you know nothing about. Running back, you got a lot of guys you feel comfortable with. They can all get the job done. You can trust them. So we're kind of pulling that out to say, look at that as a benchmark of where the whole team kind of wants to get to. Okay, let's talk about some negatives on offense before we talk about the defense. We talked about the O-line primarily struggling, which we knew. Was there anything else you noticed or pulled out of the offense that maybe was a negative? You know, this is funny. I'm going to say no. I mean, there wasn't a lot to see out there. Like, you know, and they didn't run a million plays because they condensed this thing down to two hours. But not really. I felt pretty good about everything they did out there. There wasn't anything like, man, I wish they would have done this or what happens if this happens? I mean, we talked extensively about the O-line there, and that's the main negative, I would say. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I think that the penalty perspective was great. Even though it's a spring game, you didn't see a lot of guys messing up. A lot of young guys were not false starting. They were not uh, getting their assignments totally wrong pre-snap. There weren't any 
illegal motions, illegal shifts. And I can imagine, I can imagine if you're already on the podcast saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know that Dan Mullen told these refs not to call things. Sure. You're absolutely right. That's completely true. But a false start is obvious to everyone. Right. And that wasn't happening. So that's, that's in, you know, indicative of, again, good coaching at the camp with a few practices you get with these guys. So, no, I think on offense, you saw a lot of competence out there. You saw a lot of good execution. You didn't see a lot of wrong routes being run. You didn't see a lot of coaches pulling aside players to one-on-one coach them about something going wrong. Like you saw Allen on the defense, which we're going to talk about now. So positives on the defense, not nearly as many on the offense. Obviously, they were playing with, like we've said extensively, one or maybe two arms tied behind their back. But a couple guys did stand out to you. Yeah, I mean, I want to mention John Huggins, who's a guy we didn't talk about last week, but I've seen referenced in a lot of reports as guys making guys making a move up the depth chart. Now he's, I think, was playing primarily at that star position, the nickel position behind Trey Dean, which I, where he was playing. I think when he got that interception, jumped that route, saw it, is like, this is mine, <laughs> going to the house. He's a guy who's really versatile as well. I mean, he's a, I think came in as a safety. Looks like a credible cover guy. Can play that nickel, maybe a little bit of a heavier nickel, you know, where you have a more safety oriented per guy. Maybe, you know, trading is a little more of a cover oriented guy. So it gives you some versatility there. Uh, maybe he needs to move back to safety, though. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Was not good. And then a guy that kept referencing the broadcast, Patrick Moore, this, re- this redshirt freshman walk on. Had a pass breakup for a walk-on out there in a depleted secondary. Looked like he knew what he was doing out there. I was like, good for him. You know, maybe that's his highlight of his entire Gator career, but we'll give him a shout-out for that. That's one of the best things about the spring game is those guys get a chance to play and play a lot. And I'm sure for him right now, he's beaming. Friends and family solid. I think Patrick Moore's dad was like a strength coach at one point in time at UF back in the 80s. But Either way, good for him. Huggins was a beautiful read on that pick. I mean, C.J. McWilliams had a nice read too, but Huggins was even better because to commit to the out route is a lot different than coming downhill on a slant route. I mean, the out route's a gamble. You have to be confident that you've read the route correctly. He broke early on that ball. Yes, it was a bad pass, but that's that's a that's a Kiwan Ratliff-style pick. That's an old school, I know what you're doing before you're doing it. I'm going to run your route. Very, very nice. So kudos to him for that. He earned himself a full field touchdown. Not a lot of other real positives to mention. Like we said, the defense was not set up for success. They didn't even split the defense to where you really had like a even remotely a number one defense on the field at any given time. So this is not that we see a lot of negatives here. It's more, there's just not a lot you're really going to pull out there. You could highlight some guys here and there, some plays here and there, but this, this game was not for them. The main thing that I think everybody probably wants to talk about we loved talking about this last year, Alan. I've loved talking about this seemingly every year we've been on the podcast. I don't love talking about it. I hate talking about and it. And it's been a chronic concern. And it is, in fact, our safeties. Indeed. What, what happened on Saturday? We've talked a little bit about it. Is it all their fault? No. I'll preface that right away. It's not all their fault. We talked about them being two-on-one. I can tell you from doing a ton of quarterbacking in my life, you can put Major right back there, who played on my flag football team last year, and in our practices, I would abuse Major Wright two on one on the field if I had time. It doesn't matter how good you are; you you can't do anything. You can't you, you can't pick cover one two guy guys, and I throw it to the other guy. Okay, so that happened. But outside of those vertical plays, there were all sorts of other things that also happened. And Alan, we talked about the offensive players not getting pulled aside one on one. It seems like every play, the safeties are getting pulled aside one on one by their coaches. It's almost like they just—I don't know—I don't know what to look at that there. But what do you make of that? 
Yeah, they were doing some of the stuff that we were worried about the middle of last year where you would, someone would be run, wanting, running wide open into the end zone and they're both like pointing at each other, like that Spider-Man gif of Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man. You know, I, I don't think they even have the excuse that they weren't playing with their usual partners because they switched those guys a ton. You know, Jay wants Taylor didn't play, um, but the guys who are out there, you know, Stewart, Sean Davis, Steiner, those are the guys that played all last year. They looked lost, slow, slow to react. It wasn't even that they got beat, right? Because Kadarius Tony, even if you knew exactly what he was going to do, he can still beat you. But they got toasted. They looked out of position. Uh, you know, I don't just like I don't want to get too high on the offense. I don't want to get too low on the defense here. But that does concern me for sure. So I have a question written down here. Does that concern you? Yes. What about you? It concerns me because we know that these guys have not performed very well already. I think Sean Davis is solid. I think he emerged last year as a guy who can really cover. Well, he didn't look like that on Saturday. And he didn't, but I'm going to I'm gonna go to this level here. So let's talk about what happens at the safety position on defense. Let's walk through where this goes first. So your middle linebacker makes your defensive play call. He structures where the defense goes and what's happening, right? He relays how we're going to cover this play, what we're in. In the first half, you're sitting in a defense you cannot adjust out of. You're literally screwed, and you know it. So you're two on one. Fine. We're going to alleviate every single one of those plays. So what's going on on some of these other intermediate plays? Well, now you're on the field, you're middle linebacker. If it's not David Reese, and let's, let's revisit something, Alan. What was it like when we didn't have David Reese in the game? Last season and uh, not good. No one knew it was happening. That's 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 illustrating something that's still going on right now. Is that you can make up a ton for your lack of safety play by one really smart middle linebacker, basically telling you where to go, what to do, cover this guy, do this. What you saw from our safeties was a tremendous lack of conviction. They didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. Right. So therefore, they're a step slow and they're reacting to what they see versus having a game plan for what's about to happen. And so am I going to take some of the pressure off their plate? No, but I'm going to say that when it's actually Saturday, they're going to have some more help. Now, the main problem is you want your safeties to also be cerebral viewers of the game. And if it illustrates anything, it illustrates that we're not there yet. We're so far away from that. The only benefit we have, and we said it all last year, is we play in a league where people can't pass the football. The SEC was so down last year with passing quarterbacks, they can't expose us because we get pressure. We weren't getting pressure in the first half. We're getting torched. This should explain to everyone why Drew Locke in Missouri has given us such nightmaric fits every single year because he's an actual quarterback that can throw the ball down the field and abuse our safeties when they can't be hid. So I, I think it's more of the same, but I think, Alan, it just illustrates this major serious problem we have at safety. I have to imagine the coaches are talking about this more than anything because these guys are not brand new. They no. should not be this regressive, even if they're just playing a basic staple D. You did not see our corners, by example, who are also young, wildly out of position. The safeties were just absolutely poor, poor. And am I concerned? Yes, I'm concerned. I've been concerned. I remain concerned. And one little piece, poor Nick Ulrich, who's a walk-on. He was the white guy wearing number 38. You would have seen him stick out. That guy got abused more than maybe any safety I've ever seen in a spring game. It was like they were just attacking him on every play. He must have given up every touchdown every time he was in. 
I hope he stays on the team because I feel like for him, his spirit must be so low at this point in time. His only benefit is all of his other safety mates also got abused. So very, very brutal, tough outing for them. I don't want to read into it from that one game. I want to create the narrative we've been creating, which is this unit is bad. It's been limiting us. We hid them with a lot of pressure last year and the fortuitous nature of our schedule where we were not playing teams who could pass the ball. That was a very fortunate situation last year. It looks like that will more or less happen again this year. So maybe we'll be okay hiding them, Alan, but it's a concern. So here's what I would say to the coaching staff right now. There's enough guys here now. Do what you got to do. Is it John Huggins? Is it Trey Dean? It's great if you have an awesome nickel, but if you're getting exposed at safety, put those guys back there. I I don't know. Like if you have good corners, Kyrie Elam comes in, put him back there. You know, like take your best guys and put them on the field again. I, not that Jaywan Taylor is this amazing safety. He was maybe the steadiest at like not getting just torched last year. Uh, I, I don't want to give up on this. Like, there's enough guys back there that we can make this work. I think these guys can still improve. I, you know, had a lot working against them, but major red flag. If there's only if there's a thing that was like, oh man, that was bad. It's a safety play. And again, we talk about in the spring game, every time someone does good, maybe somebody else does bad. The receivers looked awesome. The safeties looked terrible. Uh, I don't know that you could have the offense looking good without those guys looking bad. Maybe I'll take it. Maybe I'll take it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> let's look at players yeah, that you're excited to see. Yeah. Let's, let's leave the defense alone. We we just thoroughly undressed them. Uh, they deserved it, but I think you and I both think the defense will be a strength for the team overall and will be saddled with the weakness of safeties, which we can hopefully mask and grant them. If, if this illustrates nothing else, it illustrates how creative Grantham is at putting yeah, his defense in good. a position to succeed. Because if we line up in a Randy Shannon vanilla defense, which, oh, by the way, does work if you have the right athletes, not going to work when you have safety play like that. So Grantham can window address that. Same thing John Hevesy is great at doing on the O-line side. Raises question marks for all of us as to where we are in the process. We're building. We're growing. We're still the mansion with issues and interior wall issues. So don't convince yourself we're a shiny new toy that's perfect yet. We got some holes. All right. A couple of new guys we wanted to highlight. We've cut the list down to just four of them. Let's talk about John Greenard, the outside linebacker prospect from Louisville, who came in, knows the system. What did you see out of him? He looked the part. Size-wise, movement-wise. I wanted to see like how he looked moving around out there, and he seemed credible to me. I, you, you're, I guess you worry about a guy coming from Louisville who's been injured. How does he look? Well, he looked like he belonged lining up out there at that buck position for Florida. You know, again, wasn't able to accomplish a lot, but was making moves out there. Didn't get exposed. Wasn't like, oh no, this guy, this is supposed to be our savior. Um, so I guess a neutral from him is probably the best he could have done out there, and not, or at least like he looks the part. I'll go from there. How about Chris Steele, the sort of highly, highly touted corner who got a start, got a lot of playing time, didn't do anything notable, but maybe that's yeah, that's good. That's maybe what you fun. want from your corner. He looked good running up and down the field. I watched him for a couple plays. Um, yeah, I mean, I, nothing he showed 
would make me disbelieve the reports that were coming out of spring practice. Now, sometimes the guys are getting hyped and you're watching, you're like, really? But no, he looks legit. Looks like the real deal. Uh, didn't look scared out there, which I think is you have to be if you're going to be a high-level corner. Malik Davis made his return. Looked pretty healthy. Yeah, you know, again from him, I, I don't know that I saw anything like this is the guy who he we're looking for. He's back. Um, you know, this wasn't a game for running backs. So, you know, he looked okay. You know, again, I was just hoping that he was going to get out of this game healthy. And he did, seemingly. So, there you go. Check that box. And lastly, Mohamed Diabate. Yeah, a guy who's one of our higher-rated freshmen. I think he's going to play this year. He looks like he can line up and be a disruptor. He looked fast. He's not the biggest guy. Um, but it seems like they're doing some interesting things with who they're playing on that buck position, both Diabate and David Reese, the younger, who David Reese, the younger is, I don't know, recruited as a linebacker slash safety. They've talked about putting him at safety. They've talked about putting him at buck. He's a really interesting guy. If they can get a feel for what he actually does well in the field, you know, he's got a chance to be a, a player. If you can line up at all of those positions, potentially that's pretty interesting. So those are both kind of smaller guys. So, and polite's not the biggest guy either. So if that's what they're looking for out of that position, just speed, 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 maybe Diabate gets more looks than what we would have thought. Let's finish up the show here. Looking at two things, some news and notes, which could be something rather surprising came across the wire as we were recording the pod and something way less lighthearted. We talked about last week, which we won't cover at length, but you saw the raw, raw spring game antics. You saw Lido Shepard and Chris Doring score. Chris Doring's got a touchdown. Lido uh, famously lived above me in hall 2000, as it was called before we renamed it to uh lakeside. We got to vote on that. They gave us a choice of like four horrible springs, names. right? No, Springs is the is the other one. Springs used to be Hall 95. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so I lived there too. I covered the gamut. Hall 95 became Springs, and Hall 2000, built in 2000, became Lakeside. There you go. Again, terminates. But Lito lived right above me. And so it was fun to see Lito out there uh, you know, doing his thing. I think he coached on the Apollos. He's still active a lot, obviously, in football. I know what's going on. Still looked good. Looked like he could still play out there. And then Chris Doring, always around Gainesville, always doing his thing, getting a deep touchdown pass. Doesn't move the needle for me. I think people had no idea who Lido was, and the PA announcer took forever to announce it in the game. You're kind of wondering, who is this? There's no name on the back. You can't tell who it is. They are wearing their numbers, but who can right. remember a corner's number per se? So there's that. But I think it's good for the players to get to interact with their former players. There's a great connection there that Ben Troop talked about on this very podcast mm-hmm. that Dan Mullen seems to be awesome with. There were 150 former Gator they players that came that. to this game. That's incredible. That's the atmosphere Dan wants and longs for so badly. When I uh, talked with him last year during the flag football stuff, what he was really, really pushing with Danny Warfel and everyone else and Percy Harvin was just come back, be here, be on the sidelines, come to practice. And I think Danny went to two practices since he left UF. And I think he's been to like eight already of Dan Mullen's practices. Because Dan Mullen just implores him to come when he's in town. And that's a real thing. And I think that's very powerful. So I wanted to note that on the, that's not a rah-rah thing. That's a great community building thing. Right. And if that's part of building that, then do it. Anytime you lose your connection to your culture and your past, I think you're lesser for it. In Florida, we don't have this immense tradition, but we do since the 90s, these guys who are still around. 
and the more connected they in, the more connected they are, the more bought in they are. That's only good for us. So I love that Dan's doing that. Now, if that means like you know we're doing some goofy stuff at the spring game, sure. I don't really care either way. It is funny that they were they were showing for a while Frank's stat line that he had one interception, which that he threw on purpose. I was like, great, thanks for reporting that. Um, yeah, Leo was funny. He ran that in there interviewing. He was completely out of breath. He looked legit moving, but running 30 yards totally gassed him out, which was pretty funny. Now, you know both these guys. Do you have any special feelings for either one of them? I can't say anything on air about both of these guys. I have to keep them the, the spirits confident. No, I think I think that both of them are uh, tremendous, tremendous skaters. I think they love the program. Obviously, Chris covers a lot of a lot of college football and is living and breathing it and drinking it. And Lido is super close to the program. I know that for sure. Talking with Kiwan, uh, you know, doing now what I'm doing with the flag football stuff. Which there's another update. We're going to spare you that one. But Lido's been involved in helping us out with that, recruiting players. So he's been he's been really top-notch these guys love the program i think if you want to say anything about them they love florida they love the fact that they were gators and they want nothing more than to watch us be successful again and i think that's what influences the current players in the roster to feel that and i can tell you right now almost all of the players on the florida roster would have no idea who chris doring was maybe half of them would know Lido shepherd your shelf life as a notable player is tiny tiny for these guys who did not grow up being Gator fans and most of them did not and something to always remember when you think of your own life oh I watch these guys I watch that guy these guys on the team a lot of them this is just the beginning for them and so Dan Mullen connecting them to those things is only going to enrich their experience as a Florida Gator well said so last little news and note um, Malik Langham who we actually talked about last week as a guy to watch uh, entered his name into the transfer portal now, if you're not familiar with this, this is like the new hot thing in college football is you enter your name into this, into this, I guess, database or it's funny calling it a portal because it sounds like they're, you know, materializing in another place, a Star Trek kind of thing. So entering your name into the transfer portal does not mean that you are necessarily transferring, but it does tell your coaches very clearly, I am thinking about leaving. If they knew that or not, I'm not aware. Uh, you don't want guys in your program willy-nilly like putting their name in the transfer portal to be like, hey, what? I wonder what's out there. You know, Could I improve my situation? Now, there's some guys who, again, we talked about, a, I think, a couple episodes ago. Sometimes it's very good for a guy to transfer. It's better for him. It's better for the team. It's win-win. Langham is a guy who's super talented, big-time recruit, at a position – of need for us currently and certainly in the future. You know, again, he hadn't played a lot, but what you're projecting from him is that he's a very important player for this program. To lose him after one year uh, would be not good. This is a Mullen recruit. I don't know. Maybe he stays. Who knows? Uh, to only have one guy like this transfer out is probably a good thing. If it happens, you know, in terms of overall numbers, but this guy particularly, I think would hurt um, unless the coaches see something from him personally or work ethic wise that they're like, Hey, see yourself out. You know, we don't know that type of stuff. Now transfer portal question here. Yeah. It's not like Malik just entered this on his own without the coaches knowing. You can do that. 
you can just go, I'm submitting. I think you have to submit it to like some kind of compliance person or, you know, someone puts your name into it, but you don't have to get the coach's permission to do this. Uh, I don't, maybe they knew he was planning on doing it. Maybe they just found out when he did it. There weren't rumblings as far as I know that he was going to do this. It seemed to be surprised. Most people, again, we just saw this right before we recorded. Maybe I'll look on Twitter right after and say he pulled his name out, but yeah, just something to monitor. And now this happens a lot. I mean, guys put their name in there, go, Hey, what's out there? And then pull back, especially if you're a fringe roster kind of guy there, there's not a cost to doing it. It's not like you lose any kind of eligibility, but there's probably some relational cost in doing it. Um, I don't know how much in this particular case. Um, so for all, if you see this start happening a lot, mm, not good. Um, we'll see what happens with the Malik Langham story. Yeah, very interesting. Certainly, you're in this sort of committed relationship, and by putting yourself out there, it's like, hey, well, I wanna, I wanna date again, but I'm also still kind of committed to you. But there could be something better, and I want to see it. And you're thinking, Wait, or he's just out. Or he's right. gone. Or we'll he's gone. It. I mean, but that, that's the worst case scenario and maybe the middle scenario, but all of them have relational costs, I think is where I'm going with this. There's mm-hmm. not a there's not a situation where you look at this and go, oh, everything's great and warm and fuzzy. Something is going on there. I think if you're the world's greatest guy, the world's greatest recruiter, the world's greatest coach, and you bring 25 guys in every single year, you're going to lose at least one or two of them, just period, because that's the nature of the sport. It's the nature of the guy. You don't know these guys that well yet. You have not spent time with them. You've just recruited them. And the recruiting relationship is very different from the player-coach relationship. And I see no problem, like you mentioned, with a guy or two here doing this, no matter how talented they are. That's just the nature of the beast. If it becomes a trend in any program, you immediately say, something is happening here. And that's not the case here at all. But we wanted to bring that to your attention because we saw it. I'm sure that we will get our message board insiders to comment and quote and give us things that are great. Uh, we love that, in fact. Those guys keep us informed on a lot of things that no one knows the answer to because it's all speculation. And certainly, no one knows the answer to this one but the guys themselves involved. So that's where we are with that. And with that, Alan, we are going to close this podcast. It's been absolutely great sitting across me at the table. I feel like the dynamic is is strong. I have all the space over here to make expressive hand movements and motions and monitor the laptop and uh, you know stare at your incredible beard thank all you. show long. Really great. Appreciate that. And thank you guys for listening, guys, girls, um, boys, girls, ladies, gentlemen of all ages. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We appreciate it. If you liked the content, go ahead and on Facebook. Drop us a like. You can hit us up on Twitter. You can follow our exports. You can send us an email. You can become a patron on Patreon. Any possible way you can think to contact the show, you can basically do it. We love hearing from you. I'm not even sure when we're going to be back on. We enter the summer period. Typically, our next episode is going to be in July after SEC Media Days. It could certainly be before then. What I want to tell all of you, though, for sure, is we always do a mailbag episode. Yes. Always. Which means from this day, the day you listen right now in your car, wherever you're at, until the day that we do our next episode, it's mailbag time. So if you've got a question about anything, submit them, fire them off at any time. We will collect them, pick the best ones. And that will comprise a large part of our next episode, sort of our midsummer episode. Yeah, I think we'll do a mailbag maybe late May, early June. And then we'll pick up in earnest around SEC Media Days. That's kind of the unofficial kickoff to football season. But we do want to, you know, keep in touch here. We want to keep talking Gator football because we know you guys do as well, even in these 
slow month. So yeah, as you have questions, send them in. We'll talk about them. That sounds awesome. And until we see you in the May mailbag, I guess we'll call it. That's a nice catchy, there you go. snazzy episode title. Stay classy, my friends. And we look forward to visiting with you again soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.